Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, February 11th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Melissa Topshire. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. The U.S. issues sanctions relief for Syria earthquake aid. Mike Pence is subpoenaed by a special counsel investigating Trump. Ukraine says Russian missiles crossed into Romanian and Moldovan airspace. Two are killed in a Jerusalem car ramming attack. The U.S. House GOP requests documents in a Biden family probe. Poland closes a main Belarus border checkpoint. A Belgian member of European Parliament is arrested over corruption allegations. South Africa declares a state of disaster over its energy crisis. Florida passes a bill to relocate undocumented immigrants. And an Australian study finds a lung protein may prevent COVID. In our top story today, the U.S. issues sanctions relief for Syria earthquake aid. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the U.S. Department of the Treasury, Al Jazeera, Al Mayadeen, the U.S. State Department, and Reuters. On Thursday, the U.S. Department of the Treasury authorized financial transactions to Syria for 180 days following the devastating earthquake that rocked southern Turkey and northern Syria on Monday. Syria General License 23 authorizes transactions that would otherwise be prohibited by the Syrian sanctions regulations. Deputy Secretary of the Treasury Wally Adeyemo said, quote, U.S. sanctions in Syria will not stand in the way of life-saving efforts for the Syrian people. However, he also stated that there had already been, quote, robust exemptions for humanitarian efforts. United Nations Chief Antonio Guterres has called for more funds to be allocated to disaster relief in Turkey and Syria and to widen access for aid to reach the earthquake-stricken parts of Syria. He also claimed that no sanctions of any kind interfere with relief to the population of Syria in the present. Organizations like the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies said that U.S. sanctions on Syria have raised prices and hampered humanitarian operations. Syria and the U.S. have had a tense relationship for decades, as the U.S. first designated Syria as a state sponsor of terrorism in 1979. It then placed sanctions on Syria in 2004 following its then-military occupation of Lebanon. In more recent years, the U.S. has placed sanctions on the Syrian government following the outbreak of the Syrian civil war in 2011. In 2019, the U.S. adopted the so-called Caesar Act, which is the toughest set of sanctions the U.S. had placed on Syria to date. Thank you, Eric, for reading us the facts on that story. And on this program, we separate the facts from the narrative spins. We'll start these spins with an establishment critical narrative, and that's written by Al Mayadeen. Though the U.S. has lifted some sanctions, this is largely a superficial move to avoid criticism of its brutal sanctions regime. If sanctions weren't obstructing aid delivery, why did the U.S. lift some of them? All routes from Turkey into the country's north have been destroyed, making it even more necessary for Western governments to work directly with the Syrian state to help alleviate this crisis. The West must lift all of these cruel sanctions. Middle East Eye is giving us a pro-establishment narrative. The U.S. should not and will not work with a government that has killed hundreds of thousands of its own people with barrel bombs, starvation sieges, and chemical weapons. U.S. sanctions on Syria have a very minor effect on aid delivery. As such, areas are excluded from the sanctions which largely target individuals and companies, and any possible hindrances have now been lifted. The U.S. will do everything it can via the NGOs, 
with which it has worked for years to provide Syrians with aid, but it will not assist Bashar al-Assad, Syria's dictator, after he destroyed his own country. Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. In our next story, Pence is subpoenaed by a special counsel. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, CNN, The Daily Mail, Wall Street Journal, and USA Today. Former Vice President Mike Pence has reportedly been subpoenaed by Jack Smith, the special counsel overseeing a criminal investigation into former President Trump's attempts to overturn his loss in the 2020 presidential election. Smith is also overseeing the investigation into Trump's handling of classified documents. As the two-year-long Department of Justice investigation continues, Smith's office is seeking documents and testimony from Pence about his interactions with Trump before and during the day of the January 6 Capitol riots. Pence, who still could cause a lengthy court battle by claiming that executive privilege precludes him from testifying, previously declined to testify as part of the recently concluded House Committee investigation of the riots. He is the highest-level person the DOJ has subpoenaed so far. Pence's recently published memoir detailed many of his interactions with Trump. Of the Capitol riots, Pence wrote, the seat of democracy was, quote, desecrated by millions of supporters of the administration that day. Trump cast Pence as a central figure and plans to ignore the results of the 2020 election. In a January 6, 2021 speech, Trump said he hoped Mike is going to do the right thing and not certify the results. In December 2022, Smith subpoenaed local officials, including ones in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Arizona, for official communications they had with Trump. Melissa, thank you for the facts. As we look at the spins, the first one is a Democratic narrative coming from MSNBC. Few people can bring the perspective about the Capitol riots that Pence can, considering he was both pressured by Trump to not certify the votes and hunted down by the rioters. The former VP has already shared his story and opinions in public appearances, so giving an honest account to law enforcement shouldn't be an issue. He should ignore any executive privilege claims and do what's best for America. And of course, we have a pro-Trump narrative on this story as well, and that's written by Breitbart. Pence should take his cue from Trump, who has pointed out that Smith is a politically motivated prosecutor who is running an illegitimate investigation. Smith has botched prosecutions in the past, both domestically and overseas, and there's no way anyone, let alone the former vice president, should tell Smith anything. I mean, take it one step further and nobody should tell anyone anything ever. And let's just burn it all to the ground, right? Let's just move on. <laughs> yeah, start it over. That's right. Hit the reset button. We continue our coverage of the Ukraine conflict as we look at day 352. And Ukraine says Russian missiles crossed into Romanian and Moldovan airspace. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Washington Post, The Moscow Times, Al Jazeera, The Telegraph, and Guardian. Commander-in-Chief of Ukraine's armed forces, Valery Zaluzhny, said on Friday that two Russian missiles launched from the Black Sea had crossed into Romanian and Moldovan airspace before landing in Ukraine. The claim could not be verified, and Russia has so far failed to comment on the allegation. The Romanian Defense Ministry, however, contradicted the account, saying that an aerial target, most likely a cruise missile, had flown through Ukrainian airspace, crossed into Moldova, and then re-entered Ukrainian airspace without flying over Romania. In contrast, Moldova confirmed that its airspace had been violated, 
with the nation's foreign minister ordering the urgent summoning of Russia's ambassador in Chisinau. Meanwhile, in Kyiv, residents were forced to take shelter from a barrage of attacks on Friday. Ukraine's Air Force stated it had intercepted 61 of 71 missiles fired overnight, but added that Russian strikes had hit cities and critical infrastructure facilities. Reportedly, up to 35 anti-aircraft guided missiles also hit the regions of Kharkiv in the east and Zaporizhia in the south. Acting mayor for Zaporizhia, Anatoly Kurtiv, stated via telegram that at least 17 missiles had hit the area in a single hour on Friday morning, while the governor of Kharkiv said that about 10 explosions had occurred in the region as a result of Russian shelling and some areas were facing power cuts, and there were no reports of casualties. Elsewhere, reports emerged on Thursday that Russia is preparing for a huge invasion in the Donbass region of Ukraine to coincide with the anniversary of the invasion on February 24th. According to Ukrainian military intelligence, nearly 2,000 tanks and 300,000 soldiers have been prepared for a renewed offensive aimed at seizing the eastern Ukrainian region. The Kremlin last month appointed General Valery Gerasimov as the commander of Moscow's forces. He is reportedly expected to focus on capturing the Donbass, along with Donetsk and Luhansk. In Europe, amid ongoing pressure from Ukrainian President Zelensky for European Union leaders to intensify weapons packages for Kyiv, French President Macron said he would not rule out sending fighter jets to Ukraine saying, I have heard it from a number of European leaders, Zelensky told reporters on Thursday, about the readiness to give us the necessary weapons and support, including the aircraft. Thanks for the facts, Eric. Here are the spins on this story. We'll start with the anti-Russia narrative from the PBS NewsHour. This invasion is an egregious violation of international law. Putin's ultimate aim is to restore the Soviet empire, even if it takes massive bloodshed and false pretexts, such as calling the 2014 Ukrainian revolution after an election a coup. This unprovoked attack is the latest chapter in Putin's Orwellian attempt to rewrite history. National Security Archive gives us a pro-Russian narrative for this story. NATO and the U.S. have ignored Russia's security concerns by breaking its promise not to expand eastward in return for German reunification. These concerns are legitimate, and taking them seriously would have avoided the Ukraine tragedy. And from time to time, we get a nerd narrative on the program. This one says there's a 2% chance that Ukraine will officially recognize a former Ukrainian territory, such as Luhansk, Donetsk, or Crimea, as independent before 2024. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Tragedy has struck in Jerusalem where two were killed in a car ramming attack. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, ABC News, The Times of Israel, Israel National News, and BBC News. According to Israeli police, a man plowed his car into a crowded bus stop in Jerusalem on Friday, killing two people, including a six-year-old boy, and injuring five others in what is being called a ramming terror attack. Police reportedly shot and killed the suspect at the scene. The second casualty was identified as a man in his 20s, while those injured ranged from 8 to 40 years old and are in moderate to severe condition. Police say people were waiting at the bus stop in the Jewish settlement of Ramat in East Jerusalem when the attack occurred. Police say the attacker was 31-year-old Hussein Karaka, an Israeli citizen residing in the East Jerusalem-Palestinian neighborhood of Isawiya, adding that he was mentally ill. The Palestinian Islamic Jihad and Hamas terror groups didn't claim the attack, despite praising it as heroic. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu ordered security forces to crack down on possible accomplices to the attack, directing units in the area to be reinforced while also ordering that the suspect's home be demolished. 
This is the latest in a series of deadly incidents amid escalating tensions between Israel and Palestine. On January 27th, a Palestinian shooting attack killed seven people outside a synagogue in Jerusalem's deadliest attack in over a decade. Meanwhile, last month, 10 Palestinians, including two civilians, were killed in an Israeli raid in the West Bank city of Jenin. Five Palestinian militants were also killed in a battle with Israeli troops earlier this week. So far this year, at least 39 Palestinians have reportedly been killed by Israeli forces, while at least eight Israelis have died in Palestinian attacks. Thank you for the facts, Melissa. The first spin is a pro-Israel narrative coming from Times of Israel. This latest attack by a Palestinian extremist, brutally killing an innocent six-year-old boy, illustrates why Israel needs to enhance its efforts to root out terrorism and protect the Israeli people. As tough as his policies are, Security Minister Ben Gvir has seen many Israelis die on his watch, and it's time he strengthens enforcement. This conflict is not subsiding, and Israel is obligated to defend itself. And Al Jazeera brings us a pro-Palestine point of view. All violence is tragic and must be condemned. But people must not forget the violence and oppression first imposed by Israel's apartheid regime. Palestinians are being abused, dispossessed, and even killed every day. And something must be done to dismantle the occupation of the West Bank. As governments and international organizations increasingly speak out against Israel, they must not cower in the face of public backlash and lobbying efforts. I think that's just sick to praise it as heroic. I mean, just I don't think there's anything heroic about ramming your car into a bunch of kids at a bus stop. It's cowardly. It's not heroic. Give me a break. Yeah, that's just gross. Turning our attention back to the United States as the House GOP requests documents in a Biden family probe. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Independent, Reuters, The Hill, CBS, and USA Today. House Republicans via the House Oversight and Accountability Committee have made the first official request for documents from Hunter and James Biden, the family of the U.S. president, concerning foreign business dealings specifically related to the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP. House Oversight Chairman James Comer, Republican of Kentucky, alleged that the committee had evidence that Biden family members attempted to, quote, sell access around the world, including to members of the CCP, to enrich themselves to the detriment of the U.S. In addition to sending letters to President Joe Biden's son and brother, a letter was also sent to Hunter Biden's business associate, Eric Schwerin. The committee chairman has asked for the requested information to be provided by February 22nd. Comer has asked the individuals to provide any records designated classified, as well as communications between the president, his wife, and Hunter Biden concerning travel and finance over an 11-year period, beginning January 20, 2009. Comer has revealed he will consider subpoenas if the February deadline is not met. Hunter Biden's lawyer, Abby Lowell, called the committee's request inaccurate for pursuing a private citizen accusing the committee of peddling their own baseless conclusions after the auspices of a real investigation. President Biden has also dismissed the inquiry, claiming that making up family allegations will not go very far. The committee request is part of a wide-ranging investigation by Republicans into the president and his son concerning Hunter Biden's business deals in Ukraine and China. Thank you, Eric, for the facts on the story. Several narrative spins have emerged, as you could guess, and the Republican narrative today is provided by New York Post. News surrounding Hunter Biden's laptop has continually been the source of desperate lies by Democrats attempting to brush over the actions of the Biden family. Despite their best attempts, the stage has now been set by Comer for Republicans to finally force the truth out of the Biden family and the Biden administration. 
Murray Ledger is giving us a Democratic narrative. It is hypocritical for Comer to investigate and complain about the Biden family when he himself has used his position in the past to help his brother out of COVID Paycheck Protection Program loans. Rather than spending all its time on politically motivated character assassination, the GOP machine would do better to address more important issues of value to the American people. And here's another nerd narrative from the folks at the Metaculous Prediction community saying there's a 37% chance that Hunter Biden will be indicted by November 5th, 2024. He has plenty of time to run. Yeah, start running. (laughs) I think if I abandoned my laptop, it wouldn't be very dramatic. I mean, I guess most people could probably say that, uh, but it'd be pretty boring. Joke's on you, Comer. That's right. Have fun with my family pictures. (laughs) In our next story, Poland closes its Belarusian border and checkpoint. Here are the facts as agreed upon by notes from Poland, Bloomberg, Politico, Reuters, and Al Jazeera. Poland's Interior Ministry on Thursday announced the indefinite closure of the main bobrowniki bierstoica border checkpoint, with Belarus starting on Friday at noon, reportedly leaving only two crossing points open along the whole border. Warsaw also stated that it's considering imposing further sanctions against Belarusian officials allegedly responsible for crackdowns on Poles in the neighboring country. This comes as an eight-year prison sentence given on Wednesday to Polish activist and journalist Andrzej Pochabut on charges of inciting hatred and threatening national security, which Poland claims to be politically motivated. These moves bring tensions between the two countries to a new height, Belarusian officials arguing that the border decision was irrational and dangerous and designed to further aggravate the situation at the border. Poland has provided sanctuary for opponents of Belarus President Alexander Lukashenko, and Warsaw has become one of Ukraine's fiercest supporters in its war with Belarus' main ally, Russia. Following World War II, the borders in the area were redrawn, and land that used to be Polish territory became part of Belarus. As a result, thousands of ethnic Poles now live in the western region of the country. Those were the facts of the story, and a few spins have emerged, beginning with a pro-establishment narrative coming from Washington Post. The Lukashenko regime is cracking down on the dissent ripping through Belarus, and the conviction of Andrei Pochabut, only guilty of fighting for the truth, is just one demonstration of this. More than 35,000 people have been arrested, many have been beaten, and tens of thousands of others have fled in fear of their lives. Poland and the West can't stand by idly amid this repression. And TASS brings us an establishment critical narrative. Ripple effects from the Western-sponsored migration crisis are fueling unrest in Belarus, and the closure of the bobrowniki bierstoica border will only worsen this. In an attempt to thrust its vision of democracy on other nations, the West, particularly the U.S., has instigated a succession of regional conflicts in the Middle East and Northern Africa, resulting in massive migration flows. Rather than imposing further sanctions, Constructive dialogue, as advocated for by Minsk, is the way forward. And Human Rights Watch is giving us a narrative C for this story. Poland, which touts an open-door policy to Ukrainian refugees, has a history of unlawfully and violently throwing Belarusian migrants back across the border into the hands of an oppressive and cruel regime. This inhumane policy has exacerbated the migrant crisis at the border and is unacceptable for an EU country. And there's another nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 50% chance that President Lukashenko will leave power in Belarus by December 2025. In our next story, a special report about Qatargate as a Belgian member of European Parliament has been arrested over corruption allegations. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, Euronews, 
New York Times, and Politico. Another member of the European Parliament, or MEP, Mark Tarabella of Belgium, was arrested on Friday as part of an investigation into alleged parliamentary money laundering, bribery, and corruption. The news follows former EP Vice President Eva Cayley's arrest in December. Tarabella was arrested early in the morning and will go before a judge within the next 48 hours, who will decide whether he will remain in detention. MEPs typically enjoy immunity from detention and legal proceedings, but the EP last week voted to strip him of his privileges. The development is the latest in a years-long probe into whether MEPs accepted bribes from Morocco and Qatar. Tarabella reportedly stands accused of supporting certain positions within the European Parliament in favor of a third state. In exchange for up to 140,000 euros or 153,000 U.S. dollars, Tarabella has been a Socialist Party MEP since 2004, during which time he has sat on several committees, including the Delegation for Relations with the Arab Peninsula, of which Qatar is a part. He has defended Qatar's labor rights, voted in favor of visa waivers for Qatari and Kuwaiti citizens, and failed to disclose a 2020 working trip he made to Qatar. Though no charges have been yet announced, the Belgian prosecutor said that multiple raids had occurred, including a search of a safe deposit box at Tarabella's bank in Liège and multiple offices in the town of Antina, where he is still mayor. Eva Cayley, her partner Francesco Giorgi, and former MEP Pierre Antonio Panzeri are still in prison in relation to alleged corruption. Last week, the judge released Secretary General of the NGO No Peace Without Justice, Nicolo Fija Talamanca. Police have also searched the house of MEP Cosolino, whose office was sealed but not searched. Thank you, Eric. The pro-establishment narrative on this story is written by the European Parliament. The European Parliament prides itself on being above corruption, which is why the vast majority of MEPs who are not involved in this case have called for swift and concrete measures to be implemented in response to these bribery allegations. Radical actions such as the criminalization of all corruption through the Defense of Democracy package are said to be imposed to quash the behavior of this rogue minority. Breitbart is giving us the establishment critical narrative. The irony of these so-called socialist European MEPs engaging in bribery and fraud is incredible. And the few arrests made so far may only be the tip of the iceberg in the European Parliament. Up to 60 MEPs could potentially be involved. Those outside of this chaos should watch this space and note the display of hypocrisy as it unfolds. Have you ever been to Belgium? I have not been to Belgium. Yeah, me neither. I have nothing to say about it. (laughs) (laughs) South Africa declares a state of disaster over its energy crisis. And here are the facts as agreed upon by the Financial Times, Voices of America, the Southern African Times, Reuters, Bloomberg, and Al Jazeera. South African President Ramaphosa on Thursday announced a national state of disaster over the country's severe energy crisis in his annual State of the Nation address to Parliament, noting that the power outages which have struck Africa's most industrialized economy on a daily basis since 2023 pose an existential threat to the country's economy and social cohesion. Ramaphosa said the emergency measure will take immediate effect. He stated that the legislation will feature measures to safeguard critical infrastructure, as well as to speed up energy projects and the rollout of generators and solar panels while limiting regulatory requirements. This comes as state-owned power company Eskom continues the worst rolling blackouts in the country's history, affecting households and all sectors of the economy. 
The energy crisis is expected to cut South Africa's economic growth to 0.3% in 2023. Meanwhile, the main opposition party, the Democratic Alliance, announced it would challenge the government's emergency measures in court. The party cited alleged abuse of power during disaster legislation in response to the COVID pandemic. Analysts indicate that years of underinvestment in maintaining outdated coal-fired power plants have forced Eskom to step up power cuts in order to keep the country's electricity grid from completely collapsing. South Africa relies on coal for 80% of its energy requirements. Thank you, Melissa, for the facts of that story. Narrative A is the first spin coming from New York Times. The dire energy crisis is homegrown. But part of the problem is that South Africa has a growing demand for energy while leading the industrialized world in coal consumption. That's why the government is boldly embracing a plan to switch to renewable energy without sacrificing economic growth. If the transition succeeds and South Africa receives billions in support, it could boost the economy and make the country a model for coal-dependent countries. Narrative B is provided by SABC News. It is unlikely that declaring a state of disaster will change the country's dire energy crisis anytime soon. The measure will not turn an incompetent government into a competent one and will instead lead to less accountability but more corruption. The extreme measure is primarily an expression of desperation, as evidenced by the government's intention to appoint a minister of electricity to deal with the crisis. South Africa faces a bleak and shaky future. And the nerds of Intaculus chiming in with their narrative saying there's a 50% chance that at least a 3.34% share of Africa's total primary energy will come from nuclear fission and fusion in the year 2050. That's a very specific percentage. Yeah. So do you think they set that up as, hey, Metaculous community, what do you think the chances are of it hitting 3.34%? Or do you think 3.34%? Oh, I, oh no, my head just exploded. I know. I know. I can't figure it out. I'm going to have to push control, alt, delete. <laughs> In our next story, Florida passes a bill to relocate undocumented immigrants. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Palm Beach Post, NBC. Fox 13 Tampa Bay, and Breitbart. The Florida State Legislature passed a bill Friday that sets aside $10 million to hire contractors to pick up undocumented immigrants from anywhere in the country and transport them elsewhere. The bill passed the House two days after the Senate and now heads to Governor Ron DeSantis for his signature. The legislation, passed along party lines in both chambers, formalizes the unauthorized alien transport program enacted by DeSantis last year that enabled government officials to fly migrants to blue states that have sanctuary policies. This follows DeSantis's decision in September to relocate almost 50 Venezuelan immigrants from Texas to Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts, after which the governor faced legal challenges, alleging he violated Florida law by relocating them from outside the state. To avoid further legal battles, the bill, titled SB6B, which passed 77 to 34 in the House, specifically authorizes the government to relocate migrants from other states and will only ship those who voluntarily agree to go to sanctuary cities and states. This comes just weeks after hundreds of Haitian and Cuban migrants landed in Florida, many by way of handmade boats. The bill came alongside two other legislative proposals, including one to strip Disney of its self-governing status and another that strengthens prosecutions tied to the state's election police unit. Thanks, Eric. We'll start this round of spins with a Democratic narrative from Huffington Post. 
These migrants are poor, homeless, and hungry refugees, not so-called illegal aliens, and DeSantis is using them to gain traction ahead of his potential presidential run. The governor and his GOP allies are outright admitting that this is a political stunt, which makes it all the worse. If signed, DeSantis' human trafficking policy will continue to target people based on race and national origin, constitutional violations that have already been brought up in previous lawsuits. The Washington Examiner gives us a Republican narrative. Florida Republicans and their governor are using this as a national political stunt, but it's not to boost DeSantis's presidential bid. Florida and other border states have been left with no other choice as the Biden administration ignores the country's illegal immigration crisis. This is the only way to make Democrats up north aware of this fact. And as long as their concerns keep falling on deaf ears, state governments are going to have to keep shipping the problem to their doorstep. And we have a conservative narrative now from Florida politics. Though these migrant flights are understandable, governors like DeSantis in Florida and Greg Abbott in Texas shouldn't be pushing illegals further into the country. They should be deporting them, as Carrie Lake promised to do if she became governor of Arizona. They should correctly categorize this crisis as an invasion and deport each undocumented immigrant back to where they came from. And our final story today, in an Australian study, a lung protein may prevent COVID. Here are the facts as agreed upon by PLOS Biology, the University of Sydney, The Guardian, and Axios. According to a University of Sydney study published in the journal PLOS Biology on Friday, a protein produced in the lungs called LRRC15 can stick to the COVID virus to form a natural protective barrier to block infection which could explain why different people suffer from different severities of the disease, or not at all. The SARS-CoV-2 virus that caused COVID infects humans by using a spike protein that binds to the human ACE2 receptor, of which lung cells have a high level, thus resulting in severe harm to the organ. LRRC15 is like ACE2 in that SARS-CoV-2 can bind to it. However, unlike ACE2, it immobilizes the virus once attached. LRRC15 isn't present in humans before infection and appears to be part of the body's immune response to COVID. It is also produced in the tongue, skin, fibroblasts, placenta, and lymph nodes after infection. But researchers specifically found the protein lit up in the lungs. While LRRC15 was found in patients who had died of COVID, the researchers speculate that it was in insufficient quantities or was produced too late. Comparing to the amount present in patients who recovered is difficult as a lung biopsy is required. A separate London study, however, found elevated LRRC15 in the blood samples of patients with mild COVID compared to those with a severe infection. New researchers led by University of Sydney's functional genomics professor Greg Neely found LRRC15 using a genetic engineering tool called CRISPR to analyze human tissue cell culture and search the entire human genome for COVID-binding proteins. In a statement, the university said the study opens up an entirely new area of immunology research, adding that it offers a promising pathway to develop new drugs for preventing infection from coronaviruses or fibrosis in the lungs. Thank you, Melissa, for the facts of that story. Narrative A is the first spin coming from PLOS Biology. Though there's still research to be done, this study has discovered a novel virus-binding protein that can help create future treatment strategies. Not only can LRRC15 capture and immobilize COVID in human airways, but it can possibly help even fibroblast cells pass these immobilized cells onto the lung for further protection. This is an exciting breakthrough. 
And here's narrative B from Politico. This is undoubtedly promising news, but it's tainted by its late arrival. Although the vaccine has helped protect millions, it consumed researchers' energy and resources, resulting in research like this, which should have taken place when the pandemic began, being neglected. Doctors should learn this lesson and spread out their resources should another viral outbreak ever occur again. We have our final nerd narrative of today's podcast, and it says there's a 50% chance that there will be at least 18 named variants of SARS-CoV-2 in its first 10 years. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. How many variants have been named so far? Do you know offhand? There's Carl, there's Percy, there's Freddie Mac. Oh, I wouldn't talk about the hurricanes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, February 11th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Melissa Topshire, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Improve the News.